Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome to the channel. I just finished talking with James Roger Fleming about his new book, Inventing Atmospheric Science, Bjerknes, Rossby, Wexler, and the Foundations of Modern Meteorology. This came out with the MIT Press in 2016, and it's a fascinating book, and I'm going to open the podcast right now with a dramatic reading of something that you'll find on page 149 through 151. This is the theme theme song of the sixth weather radar conference performed for the first and perhaps for the last time in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1957. So the melody is unknown, so I'm not going to try to sing it, but here we go. More data, more data, right now and not later. Our storms are distressing, our problems are pressing. We can brook no delay for theorists to play. Let us repair to the principle sublime. Measure everything everywhere all the time. For data are solid, though dull and though stolid. Consider their aptness, their matter-of-factness. Theory is confusion, a snare and delusion, a dastardly dare, a culpable crime. Measure everything everywhere all the time. No need to be weary of the mysteries of theory. We have only to look at the data we took, immediately inspired, grasp the answers required. What are so rare as reason and rhyme? Measure everything, everywhere, all the time. More data, more data, from pole to equator, we'll gain our salvation through mass mensuration. Thence flows our might, our sweetness, our light, our spirits full fair, our souls sublime. Measure everything, everywhere, all the time. Here's the conclusion. And it shall come to pass, even in our days, that ignorance shall vanish and doubt disappear. Then, me- then shall men survey with tranquil gaze the ordered elements shorn of all fear. Thus to omniscience shall we climb, measuring everything, everywhere, all the time. Ah, Great, great stuff. I'm showing you this, or I'm starting with this, um, as a way to bring you into one of the things that I really love about this book, which is a history of the invention of atmospheric science, modern meteorology in the first 60 years-ish of the 20th century, and that is, it's a really fun story. Um, So not only does Jim take us into some major transformations and germinal periods and points in the history of understanding the atmosphere, the oceans, the technologies and mathematics and other kind of ways of working that contributed to the invention of modern atmospheric science. But also there's some great Um, very humanizing and humanistic details to this story. You are going to find love letters in this book. You'll find, as I just um, mentioned, song lyrics in this book. You'll find some really interesting accounts of some fascinating people, in addition to finding some really, really important aspects of the 
history of meteorology that come from, as you'll hear us talking about, um, the work with um, the work that Jim did with new and previously really kind of un or underused archival sources. So with that, I'll let you get right to it. This is definitely a book for anybody interested in the history of modern science, the history of weather, the history of climate science, the history of the atmosphere, and really just the history, um, any history told as a really good story. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for your support of the channel. And here we go. I'm here today with James Roger Fleming to talk about his new book, Inventing Atmospheric Science. Welcome to the New Books and STS podcast, Jim, and thanks so much, both for writing a really, really interesting book and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Carla. It's a great pleasure. Of course. So, Jim, let's start as is um, with, the, with the traditional question for the podcast, and that is, let's start about talking a little bit about how you came to this field. So, what brought you to the history of science as an academic field, and what brought you specifically to a focus on the history of meteorology and climate science? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, that's, I think the answer is uh, some childhood experiences with the drama and the power of the sky and the air. Mm -hmm. And I studied astronomy and atmospheric science through the master's degree level and was pretty much thinking about a career in meteorology, research meteorology. Uh, But I had a couple pretty interesting uh, events that happened to me. I was involved in a glider project for the National Center of Atmospheric Research. And uh, we had... uh, a, a non-motorized glider fly, flying into big cumulus clouds in Colorado, mm-hmm. collecting data. We were trying very hard not to intervene in the clouds. We were slipping in without engines and slipping out at the end of the day and circling all day. And uh, at, the, at the end of the evening, we'd go back to our quarters and we would have supper and we were talking. And one evening, the state police came and we thought, oh, what's wrong now? Uh, they brought us out to the hangar, and uh, someone had thrown a Molotov cocktail into the hangar, and it burned up one wing of the glider. Oh uh, appara- yeah, apparently, uh, this, these were some locals who thought we had been engaged in cloud seeding, or colloquially uh, stealing their skywater. Oh, my gosh. My memory of that period is watching the glider getting winched back up on the, on the, on the flatbed truck and driving back to Boulder. And that was the end of the project. And it was it revealed to me the passion and the violence that was surrounding that whole issue concerning uh, weather modification at the time. So I joined another project. I, I was sort of trained in high-altitude aviation and observed observation. And at the University of Washington, I was flying a World War II-era surplus bomber equipped with uh, sort of cloud physics equipment. And uh, we only flew when the weather was bad. We only flew when the storms were coming in off the Pacific because we wanted to study storms. And uh, (laughs) uh, early one morning after flying all night and uh, turbulence, we came into the regional airport, which was surrounded by pine trees. And uh, I looked out the side windows, and we were at the same level as the top of the pine trees. And the, the pilot was desperately trying to pull the plane back up. And I remember clipping off the top of a pine tree, our instruments collected a branch, a large branch, about a one-inch branch, slung below the plane in the instrument panel. And um, I remember thinking right there, pretty much right there and there, and I would be seeking other 
longer-term, safer modes of engagement with the atmosphere. <laughs> and I have to be honest, there was, there was probably, I, I don't think I was that great of a science student. I was kind of an adventurer. I had a, a you know, an oxygen mask and a beard and, a, and an attitude. And um, I thought there's about 3,000 people in this world that could do these equations and studies as well as or better than I can. But I'm thought I was pretty much interested in the history of the field, too. So I, I got a chance to um, uh, attend Princeton and get a doctorate in history of science. And uh, when it came time for my my uh, dissertation proposal, it was part of my final oral exams, they said, what would you write about if you were going to write your dissertation starting tomorrow? And I made up an answer about the history of meteorology in America uh, using a, a methodology um, one of my professors was Robert Darton, and he had written a book about the French Revolution called The Great Cat Massacre. Mm-hmm. And he had gone back into the past and found himself lost in the archives and didn't understand why the French peasants were massacring cats and putting them on trial. And it turned out they were working out their frustrations about the French royalty. But he wrote this great book, and, and I thought about it, and I thought, I'm going to go back into the meteorology that I know mm-hmm. before 1800 in the in the 18th century and before, and try to get lost, and then I'm going to work my way forward. And I have I still have that written answer to my uh, generals. And by God, I've written five books and I've edited about 20 other ones. And I followed that path. I'm actually working my way closer and closer into the 20th century. This is my for this is one of my big excursions into the 20th century in this book. And so it was just a, a way of staying engaged with the atmosphere with air, with clima, with everything atmospheric uh, possible, and, and being able to do that in a mode that doesn't require me to um, skip breakfast and fly in storms all day long. <laughs> so that's my path. Some of us still skip breakfast. <laughs> I had to. Storms I of a, other sorts, right? Didn't have a choice. <laughs> so the main storyline of the book that we're talking about today, this is Inventing Atmospheric Science follows three men who worked at the Center of Meteorological Research in roughly the first half, like the first 60 years or so of the 20th century. And this is Wilhelm Wilhelm Birkness, Carl Gustav Rossby, and Harry Wexler. So how did you come to this project, Jim? And how did you come to a decision to focus this book-length project on these three main figures? And um, I'll also mention that one of the things I think we'll talk about is the fact that this isn't um, necessarily, and you're very explicit about this at the end of the book, a history of three individual geniuses, right? These are sort of three points around whom and through whom um, teams and collaborations emerged and institutions emerged. But these are three touchstones. So right. what brought you to this focus in these three figures? It's a great question. I think of them as three threads to a very, mm-hmm. uh, in, in some senses, historiographically tangled web of of uh, literature. There's short uh, practitioner histories. There's some histories of the weather service. Uh, there was no generally uh, broad history of this era. And I said, how could I do it without using sort of acronym-filled sentences about different agencies that met with each other? And I thought I'd, I'd really like to have some warm-blooded protagonists to give it human interest as I carry the story forward. So there's a lot of people in the book, and these three people show up in the subtitle, and they form the focus of three chapters. 
but they are the carriers of the story. They're not the, it's not a triple biography of these people. And um, I was at the National Air and Space Museum. I was on a, a fellowship there, and I was working on a project uh, in going to the Library of Congress. And I'm an archival hound. I love new sources, and I, I think I can make new interpretations if I'm reading the original documents. So I was in the Harry Wexler papers, which are, oh, it's uh, at least 44 boxes, well-organized, put into the Library of Congress within six months of Harry's passing. And so they're just organized as his office files. And I thought I was going to write pretty much a story of Harry Wexler and the coming of the computers and radar and satellite meteorology of the 60s. And I I was doing that as the fellowship project. And uh, at the time I got distracted, I I wrote something else about weather control uh, instead of writing this book. But after that, in in about 2011, I got back to the Wexler papers, and I thought, wow, Wexler's professor was Carl Gustav Rossby. (laughs) And Rossby was really the center of meteorology in the 1940s, 1950s. I mean, Rossby founded the MIT program of meteorology. He founded the Chicago School. He also founded the Stockholm University uh, International Meteorological Institute. And so I, I had a Swedish colleague, and we went out to try to find as many Rossby papers as we could. He never left anything in one place. So we went to uh, Sweden, we went to Chicago, we went to Washington, we went to Cambridge, Mass. And we started collecting uh, original documents on Rossby that could somehow complement the story I had already put together about Wexler. And then about a year later, about 2012, I said, Oh, Rusby studied with Wilhelm Bjerkness now. And then I found I was at the Carnegie Institution of Washington, and I discovered a big cache of, uh, of, of uh, Bjerkness reports, because he had been one of Carnegie's exceptional people, uh, funded for 43 years by the Carnegie Foundation. And he had to write an annual report every year in English. Some of the documents were in German. Some of them were in Swedish. And so I had these three archival collections, uh, one, a big one, sitting at the Library of Congress, and, and others that I had pieced together. And I thought, this is enough for me to tell a story that starts in 1900 or so, a little bit before that was some little setup, and ends pretty much reaches a conclusion by about 1960 when the Tyro satellite was launched. And it formed the kind of the prehistory and the uh, foundation for this interdisciplinary field that we, this big umbrella we call atmospheric science. Thank you so much. Now you talk um, early on in the book about the fact, and you come back to this at the end, that much of the book is based on newly uncovered archival sources that you've just talked um, with us, I think, very generously about, right? Um, So you talk a little bit throughout the book about the kinds of insights and the kind of, not just information, but ways of thinking about and writing histories of this period and these people um, that this allows you to do. And one of the really exciting things, I think, that comes out of this is that these sources allow you to tell stories 
uh, about people and about institutions and moments that have previously been ignored or largely been ignored. Uh Um, So one of the things that comes up pretty early on is the importance of these sources in helping you to uncover the significance of scientists whose roles were previously not appreciated. Um, And we'll talk about one of them. This is Anne Louise Beck. (laughs) I knew it. Uh, Of course. She's really special. She is. And she'll come up. I think we'll talk about her um, in the context of talking about Bjorkness, right, sort Uh of toward the Uh end of that. Now, this is a book, um, as you say early on, about the future. And this is a quotation from the second page of the book. It's a book about the future, the historical future, as three interconnected generations of atmospheric researchers experienced it and envisioned it in the first part of the 20th century. So we've talked a little bit about this. Now, this sounds big. And in fact, you call the project of the book Big Picture History. So as we kind of dive in now to the chapters um, and, and kind of provide a foundation uh, from which to do that. Can you talk a little bit about this approach and the significance of it? What is a big picture history approach for you? And why is it such a good way of getting at the story that you wanted to tell in this book? Well, I do get to that on page three, right after that. Because right. <laughs> but, but in case listeners picture. haven't had a chance right, to, to read it, I figured this is a good way of translating that. For I hope they do, and yeah. I'll send them a PDF uh, <laughs> excerpts if they write to me. Uh, the uh, I am a little bit concerned. I don't want to distract from the book, but I'm a little concerned about this field called big history that goes from the Big Bang to the to Samuel Gompers and tries to put everything into a grand narrative of everything that happened. You know, the the Earth cooled, the dinosaurs lived, Exxon pumped the oil out, and now we have global warming. That kind of history. So I thought what I'd do is make a big picture history in which it has a frame. It has a it has a, a good painting, I think, hanging in the in the museum or on your wall would have a frame that's, that's equally significant for delineating what the picture is that we're looking at. And so my picture is very much framed around the lives of these people, uh, the access to technologies that they were gaining, because the book's about technology, too. It's about inventing atmospheric science through the use of uh, three technologies, uh, uh, the radio family, the uh, aerospace family, and the nuclear tracers from about 1945. And so the big picture doesn't mean it's big history. It means it's uh, large-scale, interdisciplinary, uh, both science and technology, and it uh, follows the, the key events in these people's lives and their associate associations. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. So let's actually start getting into these people and introducing them for our listeners. Okay. The second chapter focuses on, or at least takes as a jumping off point, Wilhelm Bjerknes. And he lived from 1862 to 1951, and he was a theoretical physicist. So there's lots about Bjerknes, right, that readers um, will find when they pick up a copy of the book and read this chapter. And we won't be able to go into too much detail, but we can at least hit some of the highlights. So he's in Stockholm in the 1890s, and in Stockholm, he begins to apply the mathematics of electricity and magnetism to understand what the book calls dynamic meteorology and hydrodynamics. So I want to talk a little bit about his um, the way he was using and thinking about hydrodynamics here, because uh-huh. it seems pretty important. He has this circulation theorem, and this is a hydrodynamic theorem that's applied to understanding the mechanics of the 
atmosphere and the oceans. So since this seems to be such an important contribution he's making, for listeners, Jim, could you explain um, kind of roughly what's, what is this theorem and what's the big deal here for what later, um, for at least laying the foundation for a certain kind of meteorological science? Okay. Um, wow. Uh, what a big question because yeah. <laughs> uh, my basic answer is hydrodynamics is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. It uh, is the uh, equations of, of motion and change that affect both the atmosphere and the ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you live on a planet with uh, more sunlight near the equator and more ice near the poles and it's rotating, you're going to have all kinds of things happening like currents and storms and heat and momentum transfer going north. And to, to get a hold of that mathematically and as a, as a physical theory, uh, Bjerknes was pretty much there at the, the beginning of the invention of the mathematical formulisms that led to um, this geophysical fluid dynamics or hydrodynamics. Uh, he was not a failed physicist. There's other other studies of him, people have written about him, mostly focusing on the Norwegian school of fronts and air masses. But the essence of Bjerknes was he was a dynamic meteorologist, not a failed physicist. Mm-hmm. And I, I studied, I had a professor, I studied geophysical hydrodynamics. Uh, and that's one of, back to my earlier answer, that's one of the things I really did not understand. <laughs> but <laughs> my professor would write, a board full of equations across during the hour, and then near the end of the a period, he would start erasing terms from the right-hand side. He said, well, if you, if you deal with an ideal fluid, or if you're in the upper atmosphere, you really don't need to put in friction. You really don't need to put in the water vapor term. You really don't need to put the heating term in. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, we could treat this sort of as a flat plane circulation rather than a sphere. And then you end up with this little nugget of an equation that you can start to try to solve. And I thought, wow, I, I sort of understood that by writing this book. Mm-hmm. I wrote this book by going back through the ancestry of the book. And he, Bernard Horowitz actually shows up in the book, in the middle of the book, as one of Rossby's colleagues. And so this was my professor. And, and so I'm sort of writing autobiographically, not, not explicitly that I did this or I did that. But I really did study this stuff. I didn't get it the first time. And I think I'm getting it through history. This is really profound uh, it's like taking Maxwell's equations for light and electro- electromagnetic uh, propagation mm-hmm. and using that, those sort of functionalities to describe and um, not just describe in a, in a narrative way, but, but actually write the equations for the atmosphere's motion. So it, it's hard and it's very profound. And I think these are, you mentioned actually two things that I would highlight as being really significant here, at least in my experience as a reader. I mean, the first thing perhaps is whether or not we feel like as readers or as writers, we fully understand these equations. It's something that we take for granted now um, to think about, right, the oceans and the atmosphere in terms of circulation or perhaps in terms of fluids. And this isn't at all something that was taken for granted or able to be taken for granted at this period. So it's really interesting to see that way of working with these spaces coming into the picture. And also, and I think importantly, this is not a story about failure, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those are two things to to really highlight here. That's right. And you mentioned the circulation theorem. The atmosphere is never at rest. It is always moving. You see, we, we tend to, well, two things. You say, 
oh, that those equations, they belong in the meteorology department. Let those people do it, and they'll put it into their models. Well, when we think of the atmosphere, we don't tend to think about all these waves and dynamics. And if you just look at the atmosphere, you're going to see incredible interactions of waves at all different wavelengths and all different visibilities. And so I actually go out on what I call cloud safaris. <laughs> I'm on one right now because I can look out the picture of the and I think about what's going on that made these clouds look the way they do now. And the fact that we can see the waves sometimes is because of that condensation. And then you start thinking, sort of like um, John Nash and his beautiful mind equations, you start thinking, what are the forces and that interactions that are causing this to happen? And that's kind of like, you know, you don't, there's no equations in the book. The book comes with no equations. Mm-hmm. But it comes with that sense of awe and mystery and um, grandeur, I guess you could call it, of uh, being involved, uh, sort of embedded in this, in this really wonderful set of fluids we call oceans and atmospheres. That's right. And so in the context of working in these terms, Bjorkness is doing all kinds of interesting kind of epistemological things, too. And I'll just kind of mention a couple of them. Um, as you say in the book, he one of his goals was to put meteorology on solid and also on rational, observational and theoretical foundations. And he's doing really interesting work um, in terms of forecasting and contributing to how we think about and conceptualize the problem of forecasting um, in this context. Now, other things that are happening, though, relate to something that you mentioned just a few minutes ago when you mentioned the fact that this is also a book that's about the history of technology. Oh, and yes. Right? And you mentioned sort of maybe three touchstones that we can link to in the three chapters about these three figures, right? The the final one, perhaps, that we'll get to being nuclear tracers, um, working backward aerospace technology. But here, we see the importance of the radio uh-huh. coming into the picture. Did you want to say a little bit about that in order to help us? listeners appreciate the way this history of meteorological science and technology um, are kind of interwoven here. Right. Um, If you go to uh, approximately 1900, this is when uh, Marconi spanned the Atlantic with uh, wireless. And it was a very big deal. Uh, Vyrkness, the the Chapter 2 protagonist, um, he actually studied with uh, Heinrich Hertz and he was profoundly informed on how to make a sort of a wireless uh, radio. He was able. He was a, uh, he was a physicist, as we said, and he knew uh, this electromagnetic theory. And he brought that and the technology of communications uh, into his work. And um, wireless, and then eventually miniaturized radio in the 1930s. This so-called uh, on the cover, there's a radio balloon being launched. It's a great image. It is actually the uh, central technology of what became remote sensing. We wouldn't have a space age without the miniaturized radio and the ability to communicate over great distances like that. So the, the helium balloon raises the radio package. It radios back to the receiver on the ground. And meteorologists, in 19, by 1930, they had to have electronics training as well as, uh, as forecasting training. The balloon will reach the stratosphere. It'll fly in any weather without risking the life of a pilot, and it'll go straight up. So it's a wonderful sort of sounding device that opens up the atmosphere to new um, levels. And, uh, uh, you know, radio. This, the 20th century is the electromagnetic century. We, we, we knew there were radio waves around earlier, but we actually began to use them for um, research and communication in the, 19, in the 20th century. So he 
eventually makes his way to Bergen, um, where his son and others under his leadership and guidance establish a bunch of really important ideas, right? And then, again, a foundation for moving forward. But right. he's, uh, a number of really interesting people studied with him, and one of them is the person, the scientist that I mentioned a little bit earlier, and he said, oh, of course, you know, we have to talk about her. And of course we do. This is Anne-Louise Beck. Right. Um, so because, again, this is one of the figures um, who seems to be really important to this study and so far as it helps us appreciate, among other things, the contributions of new archival sources. Can you say a little bit about the importance of Anne-Louise Beck to the story? Right. Uh, this was a discovery. I was in the Birkness letters in Oslo, and there was this letter, uh, really just a few of them, from this lady, uh, UC Berkeley honors graduate, 1918. She won a Scandinavian-American fellowship and went to Bergen, Norway, to study with Bjerknes, and she uh, helped him. Uh, she did the English editing on his most important paper on the circulation theorem, and then she was fully informed on the new methods of fronts and air masses. So she was a one-year fellowship, and she was a very bright student, and she came back to the U.S. Weather Bureau and brought these Bergen methods to their attention, and she didn't have, she didn't even hit a glass ceiling. She hit a tin or a steel ceiling. They weren't receptive. They they said no. We can't accept you know this theory. Uh, what good comes you know from a small Norwegian country like Norway? Uh, why don't you do something else? And she ended up at uh, Santa Rosa Junior College. Uh, I call her sort of the female Rossby because she had the same. Or I actually call Rossby the male Ann Beck because. <laughs> Because Beck had the same training as as this, the next fellow Rossby, but she never got to the to the uh, uh, acknowledgments that he had had. Uh, she brought her analysis to the U.S. weather maps. I have maps. I have um, the whole month of uh, J uh, January 1921 analyzed by Beck's uh, Norwegian analysis techniques, mm -hmm. and it shows fronts and storms, and you know you could almost think it's like weather.com the way she's sketching these things out. And yet the Monthly Weather Review uh, ma uh, mangled, I can only use the word mangled, her maps and uh, published one of them instead of 31 of them and didn't realize what they had in, in hand. Uh, this was 1920. Um, it, was about, it was not until 1940 that the, the Weather Bureau accepted the Bergen methods fully. Mm -hmm. And so she was approximately 20 years ahead of her time. Now, another person who was really crucial for bringing these Bergen methods, um, specifically methods of air mass analysis, to the U.S. was um, this figure, Carl Gustav Rossby. Um, right. Now, he seems like, uh, you call him in the book, arguably the most influential and innovative meteorologist of the 20th century, and he's variously described as a gregarious Swede, as a likable, high-spirited, round-faced Swede. So this seems like somebody who's also a really um, kind of interesting and charismatic personality, as well as being a really interesting um, yeah. practitioner of the sciences, right? I, I, I don't think bon vivant is Swedish, but it does, uh, it does suit his personality. And uh, I, I did a little essay on him for uh, uh, the Boston Globe and uh, had him, had him uh, eating oysters and drinking beer with his buddies and then going out to the Boston airport in 1936 to launch his radio songs. Uh, he, he was off. There's no biography of Rossby. That's another opportunity. Uh, and so there's a chance for somebody to do a full study of his life, although he, he was always moving. Wherever he went was the center of attention. 
people were talking. He didn't take notes. He didn't leave archives. He just had ideas. And uh, he studied with uh, Bjorkness for two years and became sort of an acolyte um, emissary of the uh, Bergen School coming to America. But he had his own ideas. He wanted to take the measurements to the upper level. He, this is when airplanes were coming in. He bought an airplane for MIT. He uh, bought hundreds of these radio balloons. And he was interested in what was happening in the middle of the atmosphere. It's, it's uh, half of the mass of the atmosphere is up at about 5.6, 5.5 kilometers. It's about 18,000 feet. And up there, as I said, it's friction-free almost. It's not worried about daily heating patterns. It doesn't have the mountains and the terrain in, in the way often. So he was working on an ideal situation in the upper air, and he ended up identifying and producing the mathematics of what we call Rossby waves or planetary waves, mm-hmm. five or six of them going around the hemisphere at any one given time. And uh, these are the Rossby waves simplified that were put into the digital computers in the 1940s, early 1950s. This is the weather that was calculated. It wasn't the messy surface weather. Mm -hmm. It was the upper air patterns that could be done because of Rossby's pioneering work. He he built a a rotating wave tank. It was two-dimensional. It was a very large tank, very thin. It would rotate, and you could put heating coils on the outside to emulate the equator and a core of ice in the middle to emulate the poles, and then you put dye stuff into the liquid. And as it rotates, it starts to make these Rossby waves on a, on a kind of a flat plane, like almost he turned the atmosphere sort of two-dimensional in order to get a handle on the mathematics. So incredible innovator. As I said, he started the MIT graduate program in meteorology. He developed a relationship with Woods Hole for the oceanographers, Mm-hmm. Most oceanography was biological until Rossby got it going in the dynamic side. And um, Chicago School and the Stockholm School, uh, president of the American Meteorological Society, and uh, etc. So he is a really an admirable person. Uh, but as I said, uh, there, there's, a, there's almost a, uh, a possibility of a double story where he is the one who gets on the cover of Time. And Miss Ann Beck ends up, you know, at junior college uh, making ends meet. They have spookily parallel careers with, with very, very different prospects because of the, uh, of the, uh, the gender difference. Right. And you mentioned, um, I just want to mention a couple of things for listeners. You mentioned um, that he uh, had developed or helped develop the technology of the radio sound. So this is a kind of weather balloon. Right. And um, for right. listeners who may not be familiar um, with that vocabulary, but also I just wanted to flag here um, the fact that you mentioned that he did build the first graduate program in meteorology at MIT. Um, and I want to flag that because MIT becomes a really important part of this story. Right. We learn <laughs> right. a lot institutionally about what's happening in that program. Um, and I, th- I just wanted to mention that for listeners who are particularly interested in that kind of institutional aspect of the history history of science, that there's a lot of really fascinating detail in here um, that, you know, will help us follow how that story plays out. So, cool. Yeah. 
Now, uh, you also briefly mentioned something I'd like to just ask you if you want to talk a little bit more about, because again, it it speaks to this history of technology story. It's also woven here um, throughout the book. And this Mm -hmm. is his engagement with commercial airline weather forecasting systems. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a period where we move from the development of the importance of radio technology to aerospace technology. Mm -hmm. And is there anything else that you wanted to mention um, to kind of highlight what we need to know about the importance of the development of aerospace technology for understanding what's happening here in terms of the story that you wanted to tell about meteorology? What a great leading question. Uh, <laughs> if, if Marconi spanned the Atlantic in 1900, then the Wright brothers got off the ground in 1903. And this heavier-than-air story, this, this need to have reliable, safe delivery of the airmail, military aviation, commercial flying, all this was the big engine, uh, in, in a way, military and economic, that allowed Rossby to have a, a really ascend, ascendant career like that. Uh, the Guggenheim Foundation uh, for uh, Aviation uh, gave him a grant to go to Oakland, California, and set up a model airways in 1928, uh, 27. And he was able to, um, to, in a way, regularize uh, flights up and down the Pacific coast, where the fog would often come in and they would have to do forecasts because of the mountainous terrain. And uh, the growth of aviation, the importance of it, kind of parallels the growth of meteorology at this time. As we got to the worldwide level by World War II, we're fighting a global war. Uh, the war in the Pacific led to tropical meteorology. That's going to be one of my new projects coming up. Uh, and then uh, right after the war, the captured V2s, became the pathway to near space. And I often say that the, uh, the satellite age began in 1957 with Sputnik, but the space age began in 1947 with these captured V2s with instruments on them. And they were, they were curated by Harry Wexler. That was his project to, to get the upper air. Uh, so aerospace from Wright Brothers to Tyros uh, satellite is a, just an incredible 60-year uh, trajectory with these three sort of interesting people uh, dealing with uh, all this technology. So, yeah, aerospace is a big deal. And, of course, they're not separate because the, the, uh, in- the instruments have to carry radio transmitters and the, the, the vacuum tube in the computer are little radio uh, tubes that, that do logic circuits. And so the family of radio, the family of aerospace, and then the opportunity to trace hemispheric trajectories of, of bomb debris, radioactive fallout, became the, the big three things that, um, that helped the meteorologist um, become modern. Most of the books in the field cover either the Weather Bureau sort of bureaucrats or they cover one technology. Uh, mostly they focus on computers, how computers made meteorology modern. Uh, there's a few books on just satellites, for example. But I tried to take the three technology families and then the three protagonists and sort of weave that into my into my tapestry. That's right. My framed tapestry, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> 
So Brosby is also doing a lot more um, that we won't have a chance to really get into in detail, right? And some yeah. of it you've already alluded to. He's actually supervising the training of thousands of cadets during World War II. He establishes the International Meteorological Institute in Stockholm. He's working on issues of global pollution and chemical climatology. And he's also, of course, training students. Now, one of those students, yeah. right, is someone who um, you just mentioned, and let's dive in there. This is Harry Wexler. Mm-hmm. So um, Harry Wexler says at one point, and this is a quote from the book, that even if Rossby had been a professor of classical Abyssinian <laughs> philology, right, yeah. he would have wanted to study under him again, sort of underlining this sort of charismatic power of Rossby as a figure. But let's get to Wexler. Um, Wexler is fascinating. And I think that the book um, really paints this very evocative and very kind of humanizing picture of this man. Um, you reproduce a letter that he wrote to the woman who became his wife, Hannah, um, mm-hmm. in which he asked her to move to Chicago and marry him. And I, oh, you know, it's a, it's a swoony moment for someone who likes that kind of document. But um, Well, I like that kind of document. It's great, right? <laughs> so what do we need to understand about Wexler as a kind of introduction before diving into his work um, mm-hmm. at the Weather Bureau and beyond? Can you basically introduce him as a figure um, for listeners? I, I spend most of the time leading up to the writing of the book saying, uh, pretty much, I'm just wild about Harry. He, he, <laughs> He's uh, great. He's I met awesome. his daughter, and she gave me those love letters and, the, and her own reflections. Otherwise, I don't think I could have done that kind of color, colorful introduction to the man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, an MIT graduate. Uh, he was a Harvard undergraduate who got his mathematics degree. And it turns out most of the great meteorologists have been mathematicians. And so he was very astute in mathematics. He uh, was obviously uh, impressed by Rossby's uh, and and, uh, captured by his charisma. He's not the only one either. The the new project I'm working on has one of those stories in it. It also has this intimate part too. So uh, Harry was um, uh, in the right place at the right time. He started his career when the radio sons took off. So he is a radio sound era kid with a radio package in the upper air as part of his kit. He uh, was um, a Weather Bureau uh, employee for most of his career, but he got a chance in World War II to train the uh, cadets to work with Rossby on the thousands of training um, uh, courses that were offered. And he also got then uh, in, deeply involved in aviation. He was the first scientist to fly into a hurricane off the coast of Virginia and report back. And he also was there. His brother was a radar specialist at MIT and actually with the Signal Corps. And he has uh, in his collection, there's, there's home, home movies of, of radar bounced off of, uh, of uh, storms. So he was there when radar started. He was there as uh, Johnny Van Norman's right-hand man at Princeton and the Institute's project on meteorology and computers. He was the Weather Bureau liaison. Uh, he was there when the, um, the V2 project was going and what to do with them. He was there tracing the bomb debris. He was head of research in the U.S. Weather Bureau. And, and he was also a wonderful person. He, he, you know, I saw him through the eyes of his two daughters, and I've had very good luck when I don't have uh, institutional archives. I've had pretty good luck in getting uh, in contact with family members and, and having them uh, produce um, documents that we need. So 
Harry really was at the at the cutting edge of this technology, and he was sort of my Christopher Robin in the Hundred Acre Woods. He was just <laughs> so excited. If you do the history of meteorology through the bureaucrats and the, and the official, say, National Archives uh, documents of the, of the agencies, you get a kind of an Eeyore history. You get, oh, my, we don't have the budget. We can't do that. And the Congress is after us. And, and there's a sort of declensionist history of, of bureaucratic science. But these guys were really researchers, and he was so happy. <clears throat> he actually said... Uh, in 1960, when, when they had launched Tyros, he, he wrote with a colleague, he said, uh, the goal of meteorology is to portray everything atmospheric, everywhere, always. And he just had this panoptic, exciting view. I mean, of course, that that came to a, to a halt, of course, as we'll, as we'll talk about later. But um, they, the, he and Rossby were buddies. They, they went to Woods Hole together. They hung out together. And Rossby uh, was was also uh, he wasn't the head of research like that, but he said technology is cutting uh, this Gordian knot of, of uh, intractable equations instead of untying it. Mm-hmm. And they really felt that with the new age of technologies, these are uh, these are things we still have. We still have radar. We still have satellites. We still have computers. They're bigger. They're faster. Mm-hmm. They're more sophisticated. But the question right now for atmospheric scientists is, what's next? You guys, you guys didn't invent these things, you didn't invent radio, you didn't invent rockets, but immediately jumped on them to use uh, them for your study purposes. Mm-hmm. And what's next? You know, we have all these technologies now. We sort of wither, wither atmospheric science past 1960. Mm-hmm. Now, we... Um we're going to get to the impact of atomic bombs, right, and the technology of nuclear tracers in a moment. But um, okay. just as a kind of brief segue, I want to just spend a couple minutes um, or a couple moments, um, as it were, to, to just follow up a little bit on something that you just said. So okay. you mentioned that um, when you didn't have institutional sources, you were lucky enough to have, um, you know, to be able to contact family members and get sources that way. So for the listener um, right now who hears you say that and thinks, wow, that's a great idea. Um, I'd like to do that too. I have no idea how to do that. Um, was there anything that you did in your approach to contacting family members who were um, uh, part of this story or who could help you tell this story that might not be obvious, but that was particularly helpful in your research that you'd oh. want to share with listeners? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the key message is you do it very, very carefully and diplomatically. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote many, many pages and I had a whole protobiography of, of Wexler sketched out before I really made any uh, overtures to, to the family. Uh, I had done this with Guy Stewart Calendar in a book called The Calendar Effect. And I, I was really, it was, I just had a minimum amount of information to write his, uh, his book. And I met his daughter just in northern London and was able to, and somebody else had contacted her, too, in kind of the wrong way. He said, you know, where's your father buried, and, and what was the funeral like? And I said, oh, my God, that's that's really the wrong approach to take to somebody. I didn't come in so much as a questioner, but as a resource for the family. Mm-hmm. And if we sat down together, uh, both both of these people said, I think I've learned more about my father than I knew when he was living with me because of your insight into his papers and what I can give you from the family side. And so we formed sort of a collaboration, a mutual 
respect thing. I think that's really, really important. Otherwise, you end up possibly uh, violating their trust. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. That's awesome. And I'm really, really glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very, you know, do your homework. Come in with something to give and do it very gingerly. I think that the spirit coming into any kind of collaboration in the spirit of generosity like that is a hugely important take mm-hmm. home from this. And clearly, I mean, it also helped you produce a really fabulous book. So yay for generosity. <laughs> <laughs> Makes for a, a bigger extended family too when you have these people in your books and they like you and stuff. Exactly. So let's move from there to atom bombs. Um, okay. That's a natural progression, right? So Wexler joins the U.S. Weather Bureau at 23 and after the war rejoins it as the head of research. He right. works to incorporate, and you've mentioned some of these technologies already, right? Radar and rockets and digital computers and satellites and nuclear tracers as well into meteorological right. practice. And since this is kind of um, maybe the, the final or at least the next um, nodal point in this history of technology um, that we've also been tracing. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of um, sort of the, the nuclear and also specifically thinking about the impact of atom bombs on sure. the weather in this period? Sure. I, and believe me, I, I will get there in the second uh, paragraph <laughs> <clears throat> because there was a first nuclear age with radium and uh, x-rays and the, the atmospheric scientists of the 19-teens were really interested as to whether that might be the source of energy behind storms. So there, there kind of is a first nuclear age before 1945. But when, when the test was done at uh, Alamogordo in the desert of New Mexico, Harry Wexler was in the Pentagon circle. He was actually still part of the World War II uh, officer. And he was assigned to go study the effect of the bomb on the weather. So he has a paper on the pressure wave coming out and how far it got into different neighboring states based on the first blast that was ever done in 1945. Uh, from there, he uh, developed what's called the euphemistically a spe- special projects office at the Weather Bureau. It was classified. It was still top secret. And uh, he had all the clearances. So he could be on the Atomic Energy Commission. He could sit uh, in Pentagon circles. And, and, and he could represent the uh, the Cold War aspect of meteorology, which was were the Russians detonating their bombs so that the fallout would come across the continental U.S.? Were they waiting for storms to pick up the pollution? Um, they did a study of this, and the, and 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 in fact, they they did the key study that showed uh, about where and about when the Russians had detonated their first bomb in 1949. And so the special projects group, um, again, uh, were really quite excited and got involved in some, uh, you could almost call them kind of uh, space age uh, discussions about whether the Weather Bureau should have their own atomic weapons, uh, whether uh, bombs should be used to deflect hurricanes or to to tear them apart when they were still young. If if a satellite could find a, a young hurricane and a and an airplane could drop a bomb on it, maybe we could destroy the hurricane. There, there, and, and Harry was very level-headed and didn't go for that. He, There was also a theory that bombs and nuclear testing, and especially the Nevada tests, were causing the weather to be erratic and that we were changing the weather. It was very much like today's uh, attitudes towards every uh, extreme weather event must be caused by global warming. Well, in 1950, they thought that all of these uh, droughts, tornadoes, 
excessive storms. They might be, they must be caused by atmospheric testing. And so Harry was assigned to get in under this, under this topic and, and really take a look at it and do it through sort of a research point of view. So there's a very – anybody's interested in nuclear history, uh, you certainly get the mainstream history about delivery systems and making the weapons. But the, the, the effect on the environment uh, is a very big story, and, and you can see a lot of that story in the, in the story of Harry Wexler. So there's also um, kind of a lot of other stuff in this chapter that we won't have a chance again to get to. I mean, he okay. works on air pollution um, in this really fascinating part of the story. Of course, um, there are discussions in this chapter, as you've mentioned already, of the importance of computing and meteorological satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, and also you pay special attention to the really global nature of his vision, which is also important. And I'm just mentioning this um, to kind of flag it, uh, among other reasons, for listeners so that when they come to the book, they'll also know that they can find all of that stuff in there, too. It actually, it actually makes great beach reading. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually, I'm looking at the text, and it's only 226 text, textual pages. Mm-hmm. There, there's some notes and things. And some great uh, pictures. So the, the point is I try to write, you know, in a terse manner. I mean, I, I don't try to make it technical. Mm-hmm. I try to uncover what the technical point would be, but... And I try to also leave some space for perhaps future authors or anybody interested in going back to these things and, and, actually, and um, adding something to and it. And let's you know? talk about one major opportunity for doing that, right? Um, because <laughs> we're not done yet. Okay. Um, that's only three of the five chapters. But one really exciting part of the story comes up fairly late. Um, and this is something... Um, that w- before we were recording, we talked about in terms of a kind of new beginning, right, for the story. Right. Okay, so this is Chapter 5, Atmospheric Science, and this is a chapter that charts the beginning in the early history of this very, very interdisciplinary field of atmospheric science. We see the emergence of sort of massive new funding, federal funding, new organizations, new international programs, and weather research in this chapter. There's a lot going on, and one of the most exciting things, at least for me, that's going on is we also have a new figure who enters the fray here. This is Edward Lorenz, Edward N. Lorenz, um, who works here on limits to forecasting. And this becomes actually really significant for what becomes chaos theory. So can you take us very briefly into Lorenz's work and the significance of this for both the story that you're telling and perhaps for future stories to come? Yeah, and uh, yeah, sure. And and again, I'll do it in the second paragraph because mm-hmm. Bjorkness had set up what I called a neo Laplacian quest for a <laughs> meteorological time machine. He wanted to to have the equations and be able to at least predict the future of the weather. And Rossby thought we could do that for a longer time period. There's a great big long range forecasting project using these big planetary waves. And Wexler thought, well, we could see everything atmospheric everywhere always with our technology. So maybe we can do that. And Lorenz said, wait a minute, uh, we're hitting a brick wall here. Instead of using a large computer and a satellite, he used a very small computer and three equations on his desktop at MIT, brought this paper to Tokyo to a big meeting in 1960, and he said, there are limits, there are predictive limits to how much you could uh, look into the future. Uh, No matter how good your technologies are, no matter how great your accurate measurements would be, accurate forecasts are never possible beyond a certain limit. And he identified it as about a five-day, it's called the chaotic limit. 
in which uh, small differences in uh, initial conditions lead to very big differences in the final result. Now, the way to understand that, and one simple way to do it, is, uh, is in this idea of a circular orbit in which one planet circul- circles one sun in a stable relationship, and there's a, there's a computer game called Orbits where you can uh, put two bodies in relationship to each other and they'll rotate around. If you add a third body, a small body, it doesn't matter what size, it'll start to disrupt the system, and within a few minutes, the whole thing flies apart in an, in an unpredictable way. And, uh, and uh, Bjergnes knew that pretty much. He knew that it wouldn't be possible to make a perfect forecast. But Lorenz brought it home in a big way, especially with a small computer and with the visualization of chaos, that no matter how sophisticated we were getting, uh, there would be a, a nonlinear equations being sensitive to their um, dynamic interactions. And, and there's sort of the essence of chaos came about in 1960 at a conference on meteorology. Thank you so much. That's great. Super concise. Yeah, and, and we gave Ed a, an honorary degree here at Colby. He's oh, a really? real good friend, a wonderful friend. Oh, great. Lots of stories about Ed Lorenz that uh, we'll tell in the next podcast. Fabulous. <laughs> so, that, so before we come to our conclusion, um, we'll come to the final chapter of the book. This is Chapter 6, Final Thoughts. Um, And super briefly, this closing chapter um, lists but also describes, among other things, some of what you take to be or what you're offering us is at least some of the most important findings of the book. Um, And we've talked about um, a whole bunch of them, right, or at least some of them. Atmospheric science is a team effort, not just about, you know, kind of three lone geniuses. We've talked about the importance of new archival materials, right, allowing us to appreciate these often overlooked people or stories. Is there anything else, though, in particular um, that we haven't talked about in terms of um, one of the um, most important or, you know, any of the most important findings of the book that you would like to kind of close with before we move to our conclusion for our conversation? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think uh, when we talked about Rossby's later life move to Sweden, mm-hmm. he really, he, he said, uh, a, a solved problem is a dead problem. I need to move on. So we moved on to chemical climatology and the relationship of things like acid rain and carbon dioxide to the environment. He's the one that turned meteorology towards atmospheric science as a much bigger field, bringing in uh, computer programmers and mathematicians and chemists, and he helped to make it what it was in in the 1950s in Sweden. His last student was Bert Bolin. Bert Bolin was the first uh, director of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So what you're seeing in terms of uh, global change and interconnections of the planet and human activity, that stuff got its start with Rossby back in the 1940s in Sweden as, as, a, as a sequel to his more upper air dynamic work. The other connection here is that Bert Bolin was the co- commentator on Ed Lorenz's paper in Tokyo in 1960. Mm-hmm. And so you have the founder, the future founder of the IPC, see, a Rossby student, talking to Ed Lorenz, the founder of Chaos, saying, well, Ed, is it really true that we have a chaotic limit, that we can't see, foresee the future? And uh, I think the real take-home, the stunning message is that, yes, we cannot uh, make a perfect forecast or even a very good forecast. Uh, 
uh, using what we what we know, or, or, or not not just what we know, but we'll, we may never get to that point because of chaos. So atmospheric scientists are still dealing with that now. So, Jim, is there anything else now that we're kind of in our conclusion <laughs> that we didn't have a chance to cover um, about the book or its significance or anything like that um, that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet, but hopefully will soon, had a chance um, to become readers? Well, the idea here is that we are all now in this together. We're all uh, – see, I, see I'm, an, I'm an environmentalist in a, like a capital E way – I really think that we need to have this kind of information. We need to think about this stuff seriously. And a lot of us are sort of static in our understanding. We we think about cause and effect. We think about pollution and its consequences. But the dynamic side of it, that sort of mysterious flowing of the atmosphere and the ocean and the currents and the El Ninos and the dynamics of the poles and the tropics, I was trying to get that to come out a little bit better through writing the history and having an enjoyable way to take a uh, charting the course that leads to one of, I think, one of the most important families of science now, interdisciplinary science, interdisciplinary social issues, political issues, and that's the, you know, the atmospheric issues. So, I mean, that's the real big motivation behind this was to to give you a sense of the uh, contingency, uh, the interplay of the technologies, and then that sort of brick wall of uncertainty that brings in the dynamic side of, of uh, atmospheric science. And now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book. Oh, yeah, what thanks. Are you, uh, what are you working on now? What are you currently inspired by? Well, it's, it starts with Anne-Louise Beck and, uh, and some of her colleagues. There are approximately six to ten significant, <coughs> significantly theoretical women in meteorology prior to World War II, and I'm, I have a, a research associate, and we're chasing down some of their stories. And, and, and in 1943, a, a lady named jo- Joanne uh, Gerald Simpson gets a master's degree under Rossby at MIT, and she ends up with a 60-year career that ends at NASA in 2004, developing tropical meteorology. And she has this theory called hot tower convection in which the cumulus clouds of the tropics end up as the spark plugs that are driving the whole circulation. Uh, she goes from no information about the Pacific, basically, except a few ships and uh, military uh, campaigns in Burma and things. And she goes from almost no information into these big field projects. She's a sailor and aviatrix. She's an uh, incredible uh, nurturer of, of other women in meteorology. And so to make a long story short, she goes from almost no women in meteorology in 1943 to now 35% of the field being female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're being uh, empowered in a way, sort of like the, the big convective clouds in the tropics. They're reaching the whole, through the whole atmosphere and, and doing their work. And she ends up as the final uh, chief scientist of a tropical rainfall measuring mission satellite launched by NASA that gives her good coverage of the tropics. So it's, a, it's an amazing trajectory, and I'm going to try to do that with, uh, with the life of one person, Joanne Gerald Simpson, uh, kind of woven as the, the main thread in this Women in Meteorology book connected with um, the history of tropical meteorology in the late 20th century. So if, th- if there's any publishers out there listening, let's, <laughs> let me know. 
<laughs> it's not a biography, by the way. It's a, it's a thread through all this material. Great. Uh, her papers are at Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University, and her uh, colleagues at NASA Goddard are just happy to give oral interviews and histories. And, uh, and then we have all of her written materials and uh, literature on women in science. So she lived through uh, all these different waves of feminism from almost none to uh, now it's assumed that, that women would have a, a, a full chance at, a, at rewarding careers. Well, best of luck on that work, Jim. And thanks very much also for taking time away from that to talk to me about this book. It's really been a pleasure. Um, and congratulations again. Thanks so much. Thank you, Carla. It was very nice to talk with you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very, very much for joining us today. And we'll catch you next time.